you live in Illinois and want to drive to Iowa, you just do it. No permit required. Now, what if this setup were applied at the global level? There's a term for this concept, open borders. Often that phrase is applied as a straw man to anyone who supports increasing immigration levels. But today will serve as an interesting exception as I am joined by repeat guest Brian Kaplan to discuss his interesting new work of graphic nonfiction co-written with illustrator Zach Wienersmith. Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a regular blogger at EconLog. He's also the author of several books, including The Case Against Education, The Myth of the Rational Voter, and the recently released Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. Welcome back to the podcast, Brian. Great to be here. Uh, Open Borders. I think to some people, it sounds like an idea that you would sort of bat around in a college dorm room, uh, but in the real world, it sounds fanciful. I think a lot of people would think it sounds fanciful, where you would have a situation, and this is, if this isn't exactly what you mean, you tell me, where basically national borders would be the same as between Illinois and Indiana. That's, that, that's, how, that's, that's what we're imagining here. Is that, am, I, am I right, or are you thinking of it a little bit differently? I mean, that's definitely one version of it. You could still have open borders where you have all of your TSA, but they just let anybody in whose passport isn't on a watch list for criminals. Right. I'm th- I, so, so, I mean, what I'm imagining is sort of, uh, I guess I'm imagining the extreme version with mm-hmm. a, no TSA, yeah, yeah. no walls, yeah. maybe maybe a turnstile or a guy with a clicker just so we have a, a general idea, the number, but pretty much that's it. So, you know, that would be fine too. But, you know, so I think of the, you know, the key idea of open borders is it's a world where anyone can take a job anywhere. You're free to live and work in any country that you want. Of course, you still have to pay for your housing. You still have to find the job. But if you can arrange for those, then you're allowed to do it. Uh, in terms of like, what I would consider the conceptual border, the way I sometimes describe it is unless you belong in jail, then you can go where you want. So murderers don't have open borders. They're stuck in jail. And similarly, if you are wanted for murder and you show up at a country, then say, well, look, you can't come in because we can put you in jail if you want. But but other than that, that's what I have in mind. But would there there be some sort of border security? So I don't really, really talk about that. That I mean, I think people are imagining al-Qaeda terrorists coming in, just rolling across the border. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're worried about that, you can still keep all of the current system of TSA, like I said. So one of my policies is I always push radical ideas in my books, but I try to do one at a time. So I don't try to sell people on every every idea that I have. But yes, again, the heart of this proposal is anyone can take a job anywhere. And indeed, in the book, you you also sort of... Uh, less sort of sm- you know you know if you have very specific problems oh, yeah. with just policies, yes. so it isn't sort of you have to take the whole thing in its right. most extreme version. Right, right. So yes, I'm not in a college dorm, and so you know, the difference for me between 99% open and 100% open is just one percentage point. It's not the kind of big deal. What I really want to see is a very large move in this direction. But I do the extreme case just to say, look, this is an idea that actually makes a lot of sense, and I want to stand up for it. Uh, I know. Well, I, I can I can already hear a, one criticism of the idea, maybe coming from the listeners, and that what you're saying is America is not really going to be a country anymore. You have to have borders to be a country, and you're basically saying that you know there are there really are no borders. So so what it what is the United States then? Right, I'd say this is very silly. So the U.S. had hundreds of years of open borders, and it was a country. So the idea that just because the borders are open, you're not a country anymore, unless you're going to say the U.S. didn't become a country until 1921 or something like that, then, of course, you can have open borders and be a country. So this isn't sort of uh, your conceptual first step toward 
you know, no countries, yeah. one world government, something like right. in Star Trek regionally where there, yes. where there are no, there is no America anymore. There might be an Iowa, but no America. Yeah, it didn't work very out very well in Star Trek. So, no, I mean, of course, you know, one of the main reasons to have open borders is because there's a lot of countries that are very poorly run and people there want to get out. And, yeah, so, um, you know, the... You know, you just you know, actually I have a whole other chapter on the possibility of a totalitarian world, and my view is probably world government is the most likely route. So yeah, not a fan of world government by any means. Um, I, I was listening to a debate on this very uh, topic, and the person who I guess took what would be you could call the the open borders or the you know certainly lightly lightly regulated borders was talking about. Um, he had a lot of economic studies. He was pointing to, you know, looking some of the, some of some of these we may we may get to looking at wages, economic growth, what would be total growth, a lot of a lot of charts. And the person who was against open borders, who was for immigration restriction, I think the only number he actually mentioned in his entire presentation was some survey about how many people would like to live in the United States. Mm-hmm. That was his only number, mm-hmm. and the picture he slowly painted for the audience was of a massive horde of people coming across the open borders and basically ending America as we know it. Uh, maybe we'd still call ourselves the United States, but we wouldn't resemble it because you have all these people who don't have our, who sort of don't have American values, don't have no interest in, you know, the founding fathers, the values of the Constitution, and you've basically just ruined America. Thanks a lot, open borders people. Right. And, I, and I can yeah. tell you, that, that group... Mm-hmm. The person who I felt was more effective in dealing with that audience was not the person with the charts. Yep. So here's the thing. If you moved a billion people from other countries here today, right, a billion random people, then I think this argument makes a lot of sense. But this ignores the way that immigration actually happens. So the U.S., as I said, had open borders for centuries. So the U.S. population today is about 100 times what it was when the country first started. A great deal of that is due to immigration. And yet the country remains recognizably American when you're multiplying population 100 times. So as to why you couldn't just triple it again and and do and continue to retain the same Americanness is very hard to understand. And again, well, how could you go and raise population 100 fold in the past and yet remain American? And the answer is you don't do it all at once. You do it gradually. And so each wave gets, first of all, partly Americanized, but also they have kids who get almost who gets fully Americanized. And when we go and look at how immigration works, it generally works in the snowballing fashion. So it's not that people don't want to move. They definitely do want to move. And those numbers of really high numbers that want to move are correct. It's just that the question has, you would consider is over what time period, how soon will it occur? So you know, the best example of this we have in practice is Puerto Rico. So 1902, the U.S. gets open borders with Puerto Rico. And at first, there's only a few thousand Puerto Ricans that want to move. And you might say, hey, well, they just don't like the weather here. They don't like it. But the next decade, then it's tens of thousands. Decade after that, it's a lot more than that. Falls off during the Depression, revives. And the story is now most people of Puerto Rican descent live in the U.S. And the Puerto Ricans that are here are highly Americanized. So first-generation ones may still have some problems with English, but their kids are almost totally Americanized. 
And again, this is really what I'm talking about with open borders, and it's the reasonable forecast is that, you let, yes, a lot of people will come in the end. And you know, whenever we talk about big benefits of open borders, it does require a lot of people to move. But still, it's important to remember this snowballing process whereby immigration comes starts off low, especially when you first open a border between two very different cultures. But then it builds and builds and builds. But each time you are getting acculturation of the previous group and the group and, and essentially the people that you would have thought of as part of your assimilation problem, if they came all together, become part of your assimilation solution when it happens gradually, because right now. Who helps us to assimilate new arrivals? It is the descendants of Italian immigrants and German immigrants and Russian immigrants and Jews and Chinese. There's a lot of skepticism yes. among people about that acculturation yes. and assimilation issue that either it will not work as well in the past, either because the, the types of immigrants that, mm-hmm. that, that are coming or we have a society that doesn't place as great a value on that as we have in the past. Right. So I would say that in terms of types of immigrants, we actually have a big advantage today compared to in the past. So in 1900, when you get a Sicilian peasant coming to Ellis Island, he's probably never heard English, never used electricity. All he knows is his donkey and his farm up in the mountains of Sicily. That guy arrives in Manhattan, and that is serious culture shock. And that was standard immigration from most of Europe during this time. On the other hand, today, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone like that in Sicily because Western and especially American culture has transformed the world. It has gone out and spread far and wide. Knowledge of English is very high in countries that 100 years ago, it would have been very unusual to speak English. So, I mean, right now you've got something like... A lot of people like, know who yeah. LeBron James yes. is, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, right now you've got one, about 1.3 billion fluent speakers of English on Earth. And most of those are not actually in countries where English is the first language, but they have picked it up. So I'd say that in many ways our assimilation problem is actually easier because a lot of people are now pre-assimilated and not a lot by like a million. I'm talking about a billion pre-assimilated people that don't live in first world countries are ready not only in terms of language, but they are acculturated. They understand through the Internet, television, movies, what life is like. So they're much more ready to hit the ground running than they were in the past. Uh, You know, on this idea that... You know, that assimilation just doesn't work very well. We don't care about it. We're, yes. we're encouraging people not right. to assimilate. You don't, want, you right. don't want to lose your identity. Right. You know, there's you know, hyphenated mm-hmm. Americans, all those criticisms. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I think that you know, even goes back to Teddy Roosevelt. So this worry has been around for, for quite a long time. I guess I would say the main thing is I, I agree that public schools don't try as hard to assimilate immigrant kids as they used to. But I never think that I don't think that was ever very important compared to the labor market and just the, uh, the, and the and shopping and just making friends and just the ability to get along in society. As opposed to them yes. sitting in some class, yes. you know, being right. taught, you know, quote unquote, yes. American values and ideas. Yes. So, I mean, the other thing is, so like I, I've done a lot of other research on political knowledge of the U.S. population and... For as long as we have data, the knowledge of the American people about U.S. government and history has been near zero. You go back all the way back to the 1930s, the idea that back in the good old days, schools really taught everyone about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and the Civil War, and this was common knowledge, and now people don't have it. It's Everybody just, knew who the Secretary yeah. of Labor was. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just was, as far as we can tell, it was simply never true. Right. But assimilation happened anyway. Now, I have heard the story of, well, they didn't know the words, but they knew the music. And you know, this is all right. Like, <laughs> all right, if you're going to say that, then I don't know what evidence would ever convince you. But just in terms of the way that immigrant kids go and get acculturated, it's not primarily by getting a lecture, which is any educational psychologist well, be, would tell you. Would be you would yeah. yeah. be yeah. fine with some sort of enhanced yeah. 
uh, you know, yes. assimilation. Yes. You know, so like it's generally what immigrant parents want. They they want their kids to be to understand the new society that they're in. So, you know, there have been immigrant parents who say, like, you can't speak our language in the home because I want you to be ready for this society. So, so yeah, I mean, but again, I don't, I, I just don't think that's highly effective because lecturing is not a very good way of educating people or changing behavior. A lot of work on this. Human beings learn, learn primarily by doing, not by being that lectured at. I mean, do you think, do you think it matters that in the past, I've had people have mentioned this to me, do you think it matters in the past when someone to come to the United States, you know, you, you know, using your example of Europe, big trip, probably weren't going back anytime soon, mm-hmm. had to take a a ship across the Atlantic. It was it was it was really quite a voyage. Now it's you know it's getting on an airplane, landing mm-hmm. at you know Kennedy Airport. You can go back. So so sort of these immigrants they sort of have less. They're sort of less all in mm-hmm. on America than immigrants of the past. Yeah, that's true. So like I said, you know there are many ways in which assimilation is much easier than it used to be because the world is just much more Americanized than it was hundred years ago. But yes, there's also some reasons why why non-assimilation is easier. So differences in communication, transportation. Yeah, I have a, a friend whose wife is from Taiwan and he says that every day she just lives in Taiwan. Just he's just talking to, in Taiwanese to friends back home and that kind of thing. But still on balance, here's what we can say is that we've got we've had data since early periods about immigrant language acquisition and it seems like there was never a time when first generation immigrants who came when they were adults became fluent commonly. It's just really hard to become totally fluent in a new language when you're 30 years old. And so when you meet someone who's a first-generation immigrant today who came as an adult and they don't speak fluent English, this doesn't show that we have some decline in our cultural capacity. That's normal. The thing to look at is the kids. And second-generation immigrant kids today, when we go and look at their language, they still have near total fluency. So I would just say that it's one where we, you know, rather than speculating, we can go and measure it as much as we can. And by the measurable standards, it seems like there's still a very effective engine of assimilation or in like some ways more effective, just the way that the American culture is all over the world. So in sort of a real-world practical application of, you know, open borders are far more open borders, uh, how big is the United States in 50 years? For about 320 million Yeah, now? 50 years, I think a population will double. So... I mean, maybe even, you know, maybe, maybe like, you know, like times 1.5, which again, sounds like a lot, but the U.S. has done this many times before. And people at the time, while they had, they were complaining, they weren't complaining noticeably more than we are today with a much smaller flow. So, I mean, you know, like it sounds, again, it's a lot of people what, to show what, up at once. You happen, what is, that's I'm mixing up the, my statistics. The share of the U.S. population, which is foreign born, mm-hmm. is at a historically high level right now? It's almost at the peak. The last time that I checked the data, right? Um, so people yeah, say, "Hey, yeah. slow down. Yes. Look, right. at, look what's ha- look right. at society. We're, right. What we're seeing is a reaction against that, and we, we should be having a pause, not an acceleration." Because what you're asking right. for is an acceleration. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So you know, what I would say is that you can go to the higher immigration parts of the U.S. Because of course, the U.S. does not have equal shares in all places. And not only would I say when you go to the high immigrant places, do you, is it you know, as to what the problem is? I think it's just very hard to articulate what the problem is supposed to be. But people who are there don't see it as much of a problem. The people in the U.S. who are in the data most worried about immigration, the people live in places where they hardly have any. So, again, I would say this is something where the fears are not based upon firsthand experience and not based upon seeing that it's not working. Rather, it's based upon ideology. 
like the idea that it can't work, it mustn't work. And again, that's where I would say, like, if you think it can't work, go to the cities in the U.S. where you've got 40 or 50 percent foreign born and you'll see, like, what is so bad about this? What is it about this that has to be stopped? And honestly, I just don't see what people are talking about. Moreover, the people who live in those areas are generally not upset about it. It's the people who don't live in those places who are more, I think, you know, worried about what what they are, what they're, you know, it's more they are, they're worried about what they're picturing rather than what in fact happens. How much of your interest in this is driven by wanting to help raise the standard of living of non-Americans and people from poorer countries? Yeah, so I'd say probably about 60% of it is that and just saying, look, there's a whole lot of people who would be much better off if only they could come here, right? And then I'll say, you know, like, you know, like 25% is there's also a lot of gains that uh, that are being missed out by natives because we don't get to buy all of the great stuff that immigrants will be making. We miss out on the innovations and the ideas that a lot of immigrants would be having. So, I mean, right now, there are probably a lot of people stuck in villages in India who, if they could come here, they'd be going to MIT and Caltech, and who knows what they would be contributing to us. But, so, but, yeah. but I, th- yeah. I think people, if they heard an American politician mm-hmm. Uh, break it down like that. You know, yeah. I, I'm 60 percent concerned mm-hmm. about poor people in other places, yes. and I'm something less. Yes. 40 percent. Yeah, they would say, "Are you kidding me? You should be. Mm-hmm. You should be about 99 percent uh-huh. concerned. One percent, so you're not a monster, but 99 yes. <laughs> percent concerned about how it affects Americans. That you have, you have that you have a special obligation mm-hmm. to Americans, and that should be by far your your yeah. your your, your the, the, the main focus of, of policy. Yeah, so you know like what I'm saying so I there are enormous gains on on balance to Americans. The reason why I say that I'm not putting as much weight on them is just because Americans right now are doing very well. I mean I mean actually just the other day I was thinking so if you live in any other time in history in any other country on earth would you choose America today? And that's a pretty good answer to that question. So I would just say that given how well Americans right, are doing- I don't, I don't just, want to yes, live in yes. America last month. Yes. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I've yeah, lived yeah. in America this week yeah. a lot. Yes. Uh, uh, much less yes. So I think we, we both remember the 80s <laughs> when people say, oh, there's been stagnation since the 80s. I just like, are you out of your <laughs> mind? Like, like you, know, you couldn't drag me back kicking and screaming back to the 80s. Think like, like standard living was terrible back then. But basically it comes down to, you know, there's a policy that greatly enriches the world. But there's a lot of people who gain, who gain from it who right now are living in abject misery. And then there's a lot of people living here who can be, twi- who be twice as rich. But since they're already doing quite well, I would just say that it's not as dramatic a change. I mean, you know, so like I've gone from being a starving student in America to being a professor, and it's great, but I wasn't miserable when I was a student. And yet, when you're talking about letting people get out of Haiti to come to Florida to shine shoes, that really is a transformative change in their lives. And yeah, I think that it is terrible that there are laws saying that they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Look, all they want to do is to go and come here and get a job and have a better life, which I would think would be a very relatable aim. Right, you know, when there's someone who has their own plan for fixing their own life, that is the kind of thing where I am baffled that someone wants to get in the way of it. Um, the when I, when I was mentioning that that debate earlier in our conversation, the person who was sort of for uh, open borders spent a lot of time looking at talking about uh, you know job data and wage data mm-hmm. and the impact of immigration, much less a lot of immigration, mm-hmm. on sort of the lower end of the income scales. Right. What What do you think? What do you feel like you you know for sure mm-hmm. or pretty confident about how the impact of a lot more immigrants, many of whom are going to probably be, you know, 
competing on, you know, not for the high, not for, they're not all going to be going to MIT right away. They're not all going to be yeah. starting tech firms right away. On that lower end, how does it affect native-born workers, and what do you what do you, what are you confident that you can say? Right. So just to back up, the thing that we are most confident of is that there would be a very large increase in total production from more immigration because right now there's a lot of human talent that is stuck in poor countries with low productivity, and you can move those people to rich countries and almost overnight their productivity greatly increases. Now, who cares about their productivity? Well, the answer is that anyone who consumes what they make should care about their productivity because we're, the, we're their customers. So when someone moves from a poor country to a rich country, they aren't just making themselves better off. Of course, they're doing that. They're also increasing what they produce. And when you increase what you produce, then you are bettering all the, all the consumers of your products. Now, when you go and focus specifically on low-skilled workers, here, the key thing to keep in mind is that there's a big difference between a low-skilled Haitian and a low-skilled American. Low-skilled American is probably still quite high-skilled compared to a low-skilled Haitian. So low-skilled Haitian might really only be ready to do very menial jobs, might have very poor literacy, that kind of thing. So there are a lot of – so you know these are jobs where Americans would not be directly competing with them. So again, then the effect is not so much. Or often, actually, a likely scenario is that you'll have relatively low-skilled Americans who will be supervising – the more low-skilled foreigners who are coming and taking over. So you'll have Americans that are running, for example, the cleanup service in a hotel, or the or right now in you know, like an American restaurant, you'll have Americans who are relatively low-skilled going and working in front and dealing with customers, and then lower-skilled migrants who don't speak English, for example, that are working the back of the restaurant. And again, people usually want to think about competition between these two groups, but always important to remember that very often other people's labor is complementary to yours. Right where because they're around, it actually makes your life better rather than worse. Obviously, if you're if you're going to be managing them, you want there to be more people to manage rather than fewer, right? And From again, yes, yes, restrictionists, yes, extraordinarily mm-hmm. confident that what you're saying is wrong. That mm-hmm. that that that, that yeah, the sorts of immigrant flows that we've already seen, much less the source scenario mm-hmm. that you're outlining, would absolutely drive down the wages or push people into unemployment. Uh, mm-hmm. Low, uh, less skilled Americans, um, they, 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 they're totally confident. What, what are they missing? Well, so I just say usually people really confident of this just don't read empirical research at all. Right. So, or they just read some research, uh, yes. research that agrees with their right. opinion. Yes, and of course, you could fairly accuse me of doing the same thing. I'll just say, of course, if you don't if you don't know me, I don't know why you would trust me. But you can check the references. I made a very Concern. I made a made a very strenuous effort to read very broadly. I don't just read people that agree with me. I try to read everyone that I can find that writes about a topic. I don't just read economists. I try to read what sociologists say, political science have to say. I try to read pundits, popular writers. I really do have a great phobia of writing when I when I have the feeling there's something out there that I should have read that I haven't read. Um, now, so in terms of people who do empirical work, there is a very standard view among almost everyone who does this that at most the effect of immigration on U.S. wages is very slight. So there's basically a debate between people say we can't find any and those that slight. And then another side saying actually even for low-skilled workers, we're seeing gains because they, uh, immigrants don't just compete with you. They also sell you stuff. Right? And that's a really important thing to keep in mind is people do tend to focus so much only on the labor on, on the side of what does this do to me as a worker rather than what does this do to me as a consumer. But if you want to understand how it affects your life, you want to consider both things at once. Right. I, mean, I think there's a concern. We've heard a lot about the China trade shock and the effect opening up uh, China into the world economy has really mm-hmm. affected some particular regions. 
And I think some people hearing this would say, mm-hmm. now this is going to be the, you know, the, the immigration uh, mm-hmm. shock. Yes. You're going to give them another shock with this you know, onslaught of more human right. beings. And we yep. just can't take the risk. Yeah. So, you know, of course, a lot of people think there's a, that's already the onslaught has already happened and want to blame whatever problems they see in the world on that. I mean, so, I mean, stepping back, what I would say is this. All progress hurts somebody. This is just fact. So the automobile went and hurt people who were involved in the horse industry and Uber is hurting people in the taxi industry and driverless cars are going to hurt all the people who are working now as drivers. And there are two reactions to this. One is you can say, aha, so we should stop progress. And I just think that's insane. Uh, or the other reaction is, hmm, I didn't, yeah, I guess that's right. All progress does involve some people that are losing out. And then the question is, who are they? How much are they losing? How long do they lose for? And then, of course, you can say, and is there anything that we can do to make this easier for them that doesn't involve stopping progress? And yeah, so I have a chapter on that question in the book. It's the chapter on keyhole solutions. It comes down to if you really are that worried about the effect of immigration on low-skilled Americans or, of course, the effect of driverless cars on low-skilled Americans, the sensible thing is not to try to hold back these great gains in productivity. The sensible thing is to say, all right, so what can we do to make it up to you? What's it going to take? So in the book, I talk about things like how about we have an admission fee for low-skilled immigrants or we have surtaxes for them and you use that money to compensate the Americans that you think are losing out. And again, I don't say this actually because I favor it, but I'm totally ready to make a deal. (laughs) <laughs> right. And you know, that's a lot of what I've gotten out of economics is like, what's it going to take to get you to sign this? OK, I've heard some specific concerns. All right. So let's suppose you're right. What do I have to do to make you feel like I have handled your concerns? Would one concession be let's just boy, let's just focus on people who are you know the, the smartest of the smart, high talented people from, uh, you know, countries with more advanced economies. Let's just focus on them. Because we bring in all these other folks, robots are all going to put them out of a job. But anyway, it seems like a terrible time with you know advances in AI and robotics to be to be you know uh, bring in just anybody who wants to come here. You're going to create a permanent underclass. Yeah. So letting in more high school immigrants sounds like a fantastic idea to me, and I would say this is one where out of researchers, almost everyone wants that among researchers. Almost everyone says, "Sure, high skilled are great." Why? Not you know, like what's the problem? So what's the problem with keeping out the low skilled ones? And I say is low skilled workers are also valuable, right? You know it's like so if a janitor suddenly drops dead, do you say oh good, right? I don't, right? And not just as a humanitarian, but like well that guy contributed to society. That guy was doing useful things. So the what, do we, that job. yes, so, so, right? Yeah, the, the robots are going to do this you're, job. You're, you're, yes. you're bringing in a bunch of people who are going to be replaced <laughs> right. by robots the next day, and then what are we going to do? Yeah, send them back. Yep. I mean, so <laughs> so some, I mean, would, yeah. some would certainly, but right. So, I mean, here, here's what I have to say about robots. I wish all this were true, but there's no sign of this in the data. Uh, really, the golden age of automation was seen to be from like the 20s to the 70s, and since, thing, since then, things have slowed down. And really, what we got now is a lot of science fiction that is parading as fact, and it's really just quite silly. We've got Andrew Yang trying to get a universal basic income to solve all the unemployment we're going to have at a time when the unemployment is at a 50-year low. So it's like, why don't we just wait and see what happens to unemployment before we go and start spending trillions of dollars every year to solve a problem that doesn't exist? Right. Uh, so, you know, like, you know, what I would say is you know, there's a long history of automation. N- naive people think it's going to pe- put people out of work permanently and it's going to impoverish workers. They've been wrong 100 percent of the time. 
right? They, you know, you know, now, they can always find some worker who suffered. Sure. But the idea that it is going to cause permanent high unemployment or make or, or make the poor poorer is just wrong completely every time. And, and like what's going on? Two things. One is that those ex, you know, the, the, the automation increases production and people consume that stuff. And the other thing that's going on is that when you automate one thing, people switch over to something else, which I have to say, when you started getting tractors in agriculture, if you had tried telling people, don't worry about it, you're going to find something else to do. Almost any hard-headed person would have said, that sounds great, professor. So what is the thing we're going to do other than agriculture, the industry that has absorbed 99% of human labor for the last 10,000 years? What's it going to be? And probably you would have been stumped by this. And he said, oh, well, there could be, I don't know, there could be more factories. And like, how many shirts can one man wear? I already have two. Why would I need more, Mr. Professor? And yet it is the person saying, we'll find something else to do that was the wise person. And the people saying, there's no way we can adapt to this and you're just going to make human beings obsolete, who was truly a naive person. Although I understand why they thought that, that argument of 99% of all people have ever ever lived have been in this industry. How can we get rid of it and think things will be fine? But not only things were fine, they're awesome compared to the way they were in 1850. Come on. The, the, the prospect of there being twice as many Americans on the earth I love it. I love the idea. I think Americans are great. I think we make the world better. I would like there to be more of us. Um, but there was a there was a Washington Post column um, uh, earlier this year that with the title, "Why do we need more people in this country anyway, um, other than to provide cheap labor for business? Uh, why do we need more people?" I'm now I'm quoting for the extra traffic congestion, more crowded classrooms, longer emergency room and TSA lines, higher greenhouse gas emissions. We know more immigration benefits big business, and that's right. So this, this, uh, you're you're maybe unintentionally, you're for you're just trying to help your pals in big business, and maybe you like uh, longer TSA lines, right? Already have enough people in yeah. America. So too many, yeah, maybe yeah. too many already. So this is another one of those questions where, in theory, it could be true. It's possible. So maybe the main thing that happens when you let in more people is it just messes things up for the people already here, and be better if they weren't here. I'll never get home after work. Yes. right. So that's possible. But on the other hand, maybe more people ha- actually make life better in some ways. Now, how would we ever test these two stories against each other? Well, I say the best way to test it is to go to places in the U.S. that have really high population density where they have two things. They have a bunch of problems caused by high population density. They also have a bunch of good things caused by high population density. And then we can go and see whether it's expensive to live in those places or cheap. If it's expensive, it shows that people like the package of good things caused by population and bad things by population more than they like the package of being in places where you don't have the good or the bad. All right. So and what do we see in the world? Go to a place like New York and they do have bad congestion. They've got crowding. They got, you know, so that kind of thing. But you know what? Prices are really high in New York. And the reason is that New York has a bunch of awesome things that are also caused by the population. They've got all kinds of jobs that wouldn't be there without the high population. They have all kinds of entertainment options that wouldn't be there without the high population. They have the exciting people to meet. They've got restaurants. They've got different ways of spending your money, right? And, so, and on the other hand, you could go and move to Hayes, Kansas, a nice little town that I stopped at on my honeymoon, mm-hmm. where what they've got is a barbed wire museum and a Walmart. All right. And if you go there, you can get rid of all the problems of high population. 
but you also throw away all the good things that come with high population. And you know what? It's dirt cheap to live in Hayes, Kansas. So what I would say is if you actions speak louder than words, the fact that people are willing to pay so much money to live in places with high population density shows that actually population is good. And it would be better for us on overall if we could live in, if we had higher population and people actually do like it, although they do complain. Right. And again, this is not just if you don't like it, get out. It's this. It's saying, look, if you live in Manhattan and you don't and you own and you own property there and you don't like it, you can just sell and take that bag of money and go and live without working for the rest of your life in Hayes, Kansas, if that's what you're inclined to do. And the fact that people don't do that. That's what, to me, really shows that population is something where even if people complain about it, they actually like what it does for them. Hell is other people, Brian. Hell is other people. Uh, Hell is listening to people talking about other people being hell. Like Hell is listening to people complaining when they've got a perfectly good way of solving their own problem, but they don't do it. Uh, since I know the listeners love when <laughs> the listeners love when I read, so I'm going to read one other thing for you, which I think is actually maybe the, maybe sort of the most interesting uh, criticism, and it's from um, other people have made this. I'm just going to happen to read this version of the argument um, from uh, the economist Adam Ozimek. I think maybe wrote this a couple of years ago. He wrote, the big fundamental meta question to me is this: Why is the U.S. richer than countries that most immigrants are coming from? Well, it's a combination of different levels of physical capital, human capital, technology, social capital, institutions. But the last two are extremely vague, and our knowledge of how institutions and social capital emerge and evolve is not great. A decent amount of immigration only changes these things slowly, but open borders could change them very quickly. Would these changes be positive or negative? We don't know. But given that the U.S. is already very rich compared to the rest of the world, are the, uh, the risks are to the downside. That seems to me that that that, that shows that, that there is this is not a riskless proposition, and we're already doing pretty great. We don't know. I mean, that's and this is a common concern. They're taking people mm-hmm. from other countries that they're not Americans. They haven't been raised here. They may not have the same beliefs, patterns of life, whatever whatever that thing is that makes America great. They're coming from a place that doesn't have it, and you're bringing all of them over here, and you may change whatever that secret sauce is. Yep. So. In my book, I have a section where people ask me, okay, what's the best argument against your view? And I say that argument that you just read, right? right? So, you know, just think of the precautionary principle. Like, things here are fine. Any big change we should be worried about, and let's just not do it. So a few things to say about that. One is I just think we have quite a bit more knowledge than Adam was indicating. So, like, we, have, we actually can do work on public opinion of foreign-born and see how different are they from Americans in terms of their political views. And there are some differences, but they're actually quite modest. So there's that. Does that go yeah. for all of them or, is it, or the people who are uh, lower or poorer or lower yeah, still? So, yeah, they so, have a greater... Yeah, yes. Right. So, you know, like for the average immigrant we get, then differences are quite slight. When you go and look at low-skilled foreigners in the U.S., then they are more different. Although I also say that when we look at the voter participation, that's quite low. So the people that are most worrisome also don't participate very much. And then there's also work on assimilation, finding that we've got high assimilation. Uh, so, you know, like, like so in the book I talk about, you know, you go and talk to a first-generation immigrant that grew up in another country and often have some very strange political views. And I like, talk to an elderly Italian grandma and she'll talk about how great Mussolini was or something like that. But you go and talk to their kids or grandkids and yeah, the opinions of the grandma back from Sicily are just an embarrassment to them. There is this high level of assimilation. And again, like, like this is one where you know, my wife is an immigrant from communist Romania. You know, I see no lingering, <laughs> lingering sympathy for communism there. 
Uh, so, you know, you know, like, like you know, of course, you know, most people get out, they have some grudge against the communist regime, but the elderly people, often they will still have some views they picked up from the communist regime, but at the same time, they just aren't very political. They're mostly concerned with just making their way in a new society. They're not very interested in getting involved in politics, so that's really quite unusual. So... Um, now, in terms of just what's like, why should we go and take this gamble? I mean, part of what, what I say—you you, yeah, you, yeah. you said that this yes. gamble would mostly help right. people aren't currently. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there, you know, there's two things there. So, one of them is that all, is that not, not changing is also a gamble, right? So, you know, like, like you know, there are, I know quite a few smart people who are worried that AI AI is going to not only put us out of work but is going to nuke us, right? right? And you know, the AI takes over the computers; it becomes self-aware, as in the Terminator movies. All right, now this is one where it's like, well, could we just totally prevent this problem by un- by getting rid of computers? I'm like, I guess so, but there's a lot of bad things that could happen to us if we don't have computers too, and we should be thinking about not just nightmare scenarios that are really pretty fanciful. We should be thinking about all the other kinds of scenarios that you might be losing out on. So this is one that, again, it sounds like science fiction, but I don't think it's so crazy. What if right now in India there is a guy who, if he comes here, will become a medical researcher and will give us 10 extra years of life? And if he doesn't, he will die unknown in India. That seems like an extremely great risk to me. It's like, wait a second, I could have had 10 more years. My kids could have had 10 more years. And he's like, 10 more years. During those 10 years, maybe there could be another guy who will extend another 10 years. And this could could be cost. I think the point that there's there's a lot of talent out there. And maybe some people think there is no talent out there. Yes. And that putting them in a place where that talent can be cultivated... that can happen in the United States, and maybe where they came from, that that can that can happen, yeah, and we yeah. lose out on all that. Yeah, ab- yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, I think there there is an idea of well, we just let in their elites, and that's all the talent. Right. But look, especially in countries that are just much more backwards than and much more unfair than ours, there are more people who are really talented who just don't get the chance to rise very much. And if they were here, then they probably would be picked out and would be getting scholarships to top schools and they could really contribute. So, I mean, basically what I say is, you know, stasis is also a choice and it's also a risky choice. And, um, and some people, they will point to the, um, you know, in the 1960s, change immigration laws. If we had to change those laws, what would America look like today? Yeah, well, that's you know, great, great, great question. We, what's funny to me is, of course, the '60s are probably the decade that cultural conservatives hate the most. It's also when the foreign-born share of the U.S. reached, I think, an historic low. Mm-hmm. Right. So the idea that if we could just get rid of the foreigners, then we'd all get along and we could have just a nice, orderly bourgeois society, I would say, is so strongly contradicted by the '60s. All right, all right, well, it's like one-off, doesn't really count. <laughs> but what I, I'd say is, is yes, that yes, yes. So I say, you know, like we would have a, you know, like it would, would it would indeed be a much a more homogeneous society. There'd be far fewer people that actually uh, would, you know, would would speak foreign languages. Uh, you know, if you went to top schools, you would see far fewer foreign-born students. But at the same time, there, we would have lost a lot of innovation, right? So so much of what's happened in Silicon Valley and places like that comes from the fact that we allowed immigrants. So. Perhaps the U.S. doesn't wind up being the center of global technology and all of the good things that come from that we have lost. And then there's just you know, a thing, you know, many things about the fabric of life, just like what do we eat without immigrants? Well, so I remember what people ate back in the 1980s. So back in the 1980s, we had American restaurants, right, which you know, like, even at the time didn't seem all that great to me. So you got like Denny's and places like that. You got McDonald's. And then back then we did have Italian food. So there was Italian leftover from the Italian immigration. And yeah, I guess there was some Chinese food, and that was basically what we had to eat, right? And now when I go back to my hometown in Northridge, California, there are 
truly, I'd say, 50, 60 different kinds of cuisine available. And, you know, so by the way, so my dad is probably the angriest critic of immigration that I know. Mm -hmm. And yet even he, whenever he gets off the plane in Virginia, just says, hey, can we go to that great Peruvian chicken place? (laughs) Which I'd say for him is almost the only good thing to ever come out of Latin America. But even he really appreciates that. And again, just in terms of, you know, quality of life of what your money buys for you. Right. So you, know, you say, well, can't we just import the stuff? Why do we need the people? But remember, 80 percent of the U.S. economy is services. So this means things like you have to go and do your own gardening. You've got to go and do your own cooking. You can't afford to have a nanny for your kids. So you've got more skilled American women that are staying home with kids instead of being able to pursue their careers. So, again, I, so it's not a disaster. I mean, I'd say you, know, like, you might think of it as like we would have, we would be noticeably closer to Japan. Right. In terms <laughs> right. of what life is like. And it's, it, Japan is not hell. By any means, right? It's one of the nicest places to live in all of human history, but they're missing out. There's so much more that they could have been. And again, I know this is an argument that policy books rarely make. Usually you just want to say, everything's a total disaster. The world's going to hell. And again, that's, that's not my view. That's just not a true view. So I'm not going to say that. What I want to say is we could have been so much more. We have right. missed, we, there are opportunities that we just passed up because we weren't willing to calm down and say, hmm, maybe. Maybe. And then, yes, I, you know, since we, you, know, you mentioned what happens to people in other countries, I think it is terrible that there are so many people from other countries are stuck in Haiti when they could be living a great life here. Oh, and yeah, the potential, certainly. Yes. And, and like, like, just like, why not? So like whenever, every, you know, every immigrant that I know, especially coming from poor countries, they're here, they're living good lives and say, like, why does a human being want to veto this? Or, or like, why, do you, why would you want to say that was a mistake that my friend is having a good life here? I really but despite less, and really then I'll, I'll make this my final question. It, it seems like that you're facing a headwind on this issue, not a, <laughs> a tailwind. Uh, do you see that changing anytime soon? Or you sort of put mm. the idea out there and hopefully in time we will see the wisdom of it? Yeah. So if you look at any of my books, I always choose topics with headwinds because all the other people have already written 50 books on the topics with tailwinds. So... I just, you know, like, like for me, it's just not very intellectually interesting to work on a topic where there's a lot of smart people who've worked on it before, because then they figured out the answers, and what do I have left to do? I like to work on topics that smart people have not done much on, where there's just a lot of low-hanging fruit, there's a lot of new things to say, and where I can bring it together. And, you know, so, you know, I, I like these orphaned ideas, ideas that I think are actually great ideas, but no one loves them, or hardly anyone loves them, and I say, look, you're my idea, I adopt you, and I'm going to raise you, and you're going to grow up tall and proud and strong. Uh, so in terms of you know, how much things are going to change, so uh, here's what I'd say. Uh, if you go and look at U.S. public opinion immigration, for almost all of recorded history, going back to probably the 1960s, fewer than 10% of Americans said we should have more immigration. And this was true for decades. And then starting about 15, 20 years ago, it started rising. And now, actually, it's at about 30% of Americans say that we should have more immigration. Now, you can still say, yeah, 70% say we shouldn't, but this is a tripling. This is, you know, it is a view that has gone from being almost no one thinks it to one that is actually a common view. And again, in terms of public opinion patterns, it does look a lot like public opinion on gay marriage and marijuana legalization. All, th- all three of these issues are ones where the public was strongly opposed for many decades. It's not true that marijuana legalization became gradually more popular. It was very flat. And you're like thinking, like, why is this? All these potheads are growing up and now they don't want pot anymore. And that looks like what was true. And then suddenly around 2000, that changes. And I don't understand why, but it did. 
and the insane thing for gay marriage. And that and right now, the public opinion for immigration, not for open borders, which is, of course, very remote, but for just for more, it's now a noticeable view. Uh, there is a serious question how much of the support for more immigration is just thinly veiled hostility to Trump. Right. How much he, are that? If he's for it, I'm again in it. Yes, he's yes. Getting, I'm for it. How much of that? Some, I think some of it is. I hope that's wrong. Um, you know, prove me wrong, people. I'd really, li- I'd really like to see this being in a, like a, an, ur- an earnest change of heart. Um, my best guess is that you're not going to get a noticeable, po- a noticeable change in the law until you've got one party that has strong control of all three branches. And even then, it's not that likely. So I was worried during the first two years of Trump's administration. I said, well, you got the presidency, you've got Congress, you got the Senate. What are the odds that they go and pass a fundamental change in U.S. Le- in US immigration legislation? And I was giving it yeah, 20, 25 percent. But they dropped the ball on that, which you can say whether you like them or not, they failed. Right. And you know, so you know, my view is, you know, like you know, what I call, you know, ADHD. I don't think, you know, he's, you know, I mean, I will say there, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people like me who I will just say, like, uh, once I got an idea in my head, I am like a pit bull, and I just don't resist, and I just don't stop, and I am constantly sitting there. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And then there are other people who hear something and say that's great, and then they hear something else, and their mind wanders off, and. I, Trump looks to me like the second kind of guy. If I were against immigration, I would be super disappointed with him because he said a lot. And then, of course, he has changed a bunch of policies through executive order. But all those policies right. can and probably will be changed when the next person gets in office. So he hasn't done anything lasting. And so I think that the most likely scenario is, of course, just the status quo persists. Uh, but long run, I think you know, the public opinion will keep moving this direction. And especially because it really does look like one of the main things that makes people more friendly to immigration is just being in an area with immigrants. Yeah. So it is something that tends to feed on itself because it's not the kind of thing where to know them is to hate them. It just is not true. Well, I certainly don't hate this book, Brian. And uh, I, I'll tell you this, it is the finest graphic novel on immigration. <laughs> that I that I I, I don't hesitate. <laughs> Brian Kaplan, thanks. Really for appreciate that. <laughs> Brian Kaplan, thanks for coming out coming on oh, the yeah. podcast. This, this has been awesome. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks a lot. 